take our Bibles. Let's talk about something prior to that sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's go all the way in the Old Testament to the book of Job. The book of Job. There's a story that comes from the mid-1900s about a gentleman who had been born again, a young man finishing up his Bible college training. And he had a burden that he wanted to go down into the areas of the uh, of Uruguay, Ecuador, and do a radio program that would be evangelistic called the Voice of the Andes to share the gospel with the peoples of that region. And when he was getting on the flight in Miami that was going to be his final leg of the flight to get down into South America, he uh, wanted to write a note to his family and stick it in an envelope, but he realized he didn't have a piece of paper. So he saw a scrap of paper that was there by one of the seats you know, on the, uh, in the airline's um, terminal. He grabbed the piece of paper, and on one side there had been an advertisement of some sort, but on the back side it was white. So he wrote his family a note. And it just been basically, hey, I'm ready to board the plane. You know, I've been thinking about you. Thank you for your prayers, your support. You know, I'll talk to you when I get back. And those were the days there was no cell phone and the things computer-wise you couldn't talk so quickly. And so he signed off, said, I love you all, and put it in an envelope and mailed it. And then he, a few minutes later, got on the plane. And as you can see by some of the things stated up there on the board already, the plane took off and when it got over the mountains of the Ecuador, it crashed. And everybody was killed on that plane. Nobody survived. The family of this one young Christian man was absolutely brokenhearted. The hearts even more. And one of the family members said, hey, there's something on the backside. And when they flipped it over from that advertisement that was on the backside... There was a picture, but there was only one word on the other side from the advertisement that it wasn't complete, but just that segment. And the one word was, why? The families wondered that. Why? Why is such a, in their mind, a senseless thing that this young man, in the prime of his life, wanting to serve the Lord, why did his life end then? There are all kinds of whys that we ask, and it's happened more and more. There's individuals here why me? Why this tragedy? Why this situation? And it comes time and time again. And it's not new. It's not American. It's worldwide and it's ancient. It's the question through the book of Job that's going to be asked over and over again. Why? It's the debate, the discussion by Job's friends who come. Why you are suffering? We're going to get into a lot of it, but let's make sure we understand the very beginning of the book of Job. As we begin, we open it up the story and we learn about Job the man. There's information in that first chapter that we looked at a couple of weeks ago about this man being a model believer, a model citizen of God, serving the Lord there in his region, a man who was wealthy, but more than earthly wealth, he had a great, rich walk with the Lord. He was extremely influential. He was dedicated. He was praying for his family, his adult children, on a regular basis. This fellow is even commended in the New Testament about the patience of Job. Here he is, an outstanding citizen. At the same time, in chapter 1 we looked at, there's another scene that's going on in heaven at the same time that we read about this man on earth. It's a scene in heaven where God and Satan have words. It starts in chapter 1 where God begins the discussion. And he says to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? And he talks about how good this man is. And Satan agrees 
that Job is upright and he's righteous and he escheweth evil, as the King James Old English says. And Satan says, the only reason that he's serving you is because you give him things. You've bought him off. He's mercenary in the idea that he's serving you. He's pious for hire, holy for hire, we said. And God's knowing Job, knowing better, says that he doesn't respond, but listens to Satan and his argument, and quietly just is attentive as Satan says, you take away all of his riches, you take away all of his possessions, you get rid of his cell phone, his car, his house, his bank accounts, get rid of his retirement, get rid of his job, and he'll stop serving you. And God says, okay, you have my permission to go and do that. And we read in the next scene, the next scene is all of a sudden the curtains opens and says a day happened where Satan launches his attack on Job. And we read about the attacks on Job. We read about how God, they came in one day unexpectedly, how serious they were. We read about the, the, the events as you just jump down in the text where we start reading in verse 14 what happens to him. One after another, all of a sudden, Job is being attacked like none of us. Chapter 1, verse 14, There came a messenger unto Job and said, The oxen were plowing, the asses feeding, and beside them. And the Sabians fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came also another. And he said, The fire of God has fallen from heaven and has burned up the sheep, the servants, and consumed them, and I only am escaped alone to tell you. While he was speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans made out three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away. Yea, and they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. And then it says, And while he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, Your sons, your daughters, were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. And behold, there came a great tornado from the wilderness, smote the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young men, and they are dead. And I only am escaped alone to tell you. And, jo and Satan was convinced that Job would curse God. But all of a sudden we read just a fascinating, commendable response. Then Job arose, rent his mantle, shaved his head, fell down to the ground and worshipped. And said, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. The Lord gave, the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this... Job sinned not, nor charged God with foolishness. And then we have another scene. Again, there was a day. God and Satan have their second conversation. The scene embarks where all of a sudden the angels are coming before God Almighty. Again. Satan's with them. Again. And Satan and God again have a conversation that God initiates. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? How that he is so faithful. And we go on and the Lord says in verse 3, He says, Have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him in the world, in the earth, a perfect, an upright man, one that fears God, escheweth evil. And still he holds fast his integrity, although you moved me against him to destroy him without cause. And again, Satan speaks. Again, Satan starts spouting off. He doesn't admit he's wrong. He doesn't say, concede any form of defeat. He once again attacks Job's motivations for worship. And this time, his comments go this way. Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man has will he give for his own life. The idea is, 
Yeah, he's hurting, but you haven't afflicted him personally, his health. People, people can suffer loss with other peoples and things, but when you attack them personally, when it's their health issue. I remember reading about one of our, one of our famous uh, athletes in America that made this comment after having multiple, multiple surgeries. He said, I've come to learn in my life there is no minor surgery unless it's happening to somebody else. When it happens to us, it, anything's major. And Job is being accused of saying, the only reason he's serving you is because you haven't made him personally, physically pain. And so, once again, you have Satan accusing him of serving God for personal benefit, for personal gain. And God's response to this is interesting. He just says, okay, you can, you can take his health. But he says, as Satan's comment, put forth your hand now, touch his bone or his flesh, and he will curse thee to your face. And God said, behold, he is in your hand, except you cannot, you cannot take his life. And so what happens here is God allows Satan to attack again. And he, he immediately leaves the presence of God and we have the next scene. Satan coming down to this earth and Satan attacking Job. The next section of the story is about Job's attack. His physical attack where it's, a, it's an attack on his skin. I don't know what the disease is. Some of you are far smarter than the rest of this, those who write scriptures that, uh, and study them of old. We really don't know what the skin disease is. There's a, lots of ideas, but we do know this. It's the same type of plague that afflicted the Egyptians. We know this, that it's all over his body. It states in the verses very clearly so that you and I get the idea. It says in verse 7, Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord, smote him with sore boils from the sole of his foot unto the his top of his head. The idea is that there is going to be no position, no posture, standing, lying, sitting. There's going to be no relief. It's going to be painful no matter what his position, what his posture. And Job writes about it and describes his own illness. Taking the words of Job, let me give you a better picture, a bigger picture of what this was and how it afflicted him. We go throughout the, point, the passage and we know that there's some type of itching, some type of scratching, some type of rash that it's scabbing over and he's taking, he's taking pieces of pottery and he's scraping something. Whether it's just like the, like I say, the, un, uh, the unsatisfied itch or some oozing, we don't know. We know that Job describes, he says, there's worms in these sores that are causing him problems. He says later on that when he breathes, he has problems breathing. We know that there's an extreme loss of weight that takes place. Where he talks about that his flesh is consumed away. He talks about his bones are visible. We know that there's a high fever that's running with this disease. We know that as well that his face changes to the point that he's unrecognizable. We know that he is, his skin, he talks about being discolored, being dirty. Is it the dirtiness of the disease? Is it the dirtiness of just everything around him? But it's, it's discoloring the guy. We know that the disease is so, to the point that he has no appetite, that food doesn't come to him, only sighings. 
We know that he says that I feel a fear of that which I was most afraid of has come upon me. I don't know what he's saying. Maybe is it, you know how you sometimes think, if there's any disease, I hope I don't get. Maybe that's what Job means by that comment. That I hope when I visit somebody or see something that I never have to experience that disease. And that's the disease he has. I, I, he makes comment, he says, I am unable to sleep. I can't rest. My tossings, my turnings, they go all night long. So you add to it fever, upset stomach. You know what it's like when you don't sleep for extended periods of time? The sickness just gets worse. The, the mental abilities become even harder. The depression, the discouragement beca- takes you to new depths. He says that this sores that are filled with worms, they open up. And the pus, excuse me, but the pus is oozing out. He says that there's a redness around his eyes that are swollen. That there's a sensitivity. He says when he describes, he says, my breath is abhorrent to my wife. That I've got this halitosis that can't go away. He describes the illness, he says, it is continuous. There is no relief. No Advil, no morphine, no nothing is taking it away. It is just horrendous. We read in the text that he says as he talks about it further, he seems to describe it that it lasts for a period of months. That he talks about, he says, I'm allotted months of this emptiness. Oh, that I were in those months of old. When he's talking about it, he says that my friends came to me and they didn't even know it was me. I am so disformed, discolored, that even my closest friends who come and sit with me for a period of time, they didn't even know it was me at first. He says that I become an outcast. There's a phrase in this passage, you look, and it says, he's sitting amongst the ashes. The bulk of scholars conclude that what this is, is back in Bible days, or even in modern days, I remember we had this in the town where I grew up. About a half a mile from our gas station was the town dump. And it was the place where everybody could just go in on their own, and they could just dump their trash. And then the guy who oversaw the dump would go in on a daily basis or every other day, and he would burn the stuff. And he would separate some of the piles and it was just, there was a flame out, out there most all the time or smoke rising from just this, this burning area. Jo- and Job talks about how he used to sit in the city gates and he was a leader and he was looked up to. But now he is in the ashes and many scholars conclude that where he is sitting at this point, because he's such an outcast, he's such a leper to the rest of the community, that he's sitting in that dump area where the dogs are scavenging and the animals are getting tidbits of food, that there he is, finding himself relegated to that area, that even, he says later on, his servants want nothing to do with him. His former friends, his brothers and sisters, he talks about how his own siblings want nothing to do with him. There he is, physically in that pain, in that situation, surrounded by scavenging animals, sitting in a stinking dump and himself... He is stinking. He is polluted. He is diseased. And there he sits for a period of time. And then we read these words that his wife comes up to him to encourage him. And she says, Do you still retain your integrity? Curse God and die. His response. He says to her, 
You speak as one of the foolish women. What? Shall we receive good at the hand of God, and shall we not receive evil? In all of this, did not Job... What's your Bible read? Sin with what? Sin with his lips. In all of this, he doesn't sin with his lips. Here he responds... In the middle of grieving his own personal pain, the loss of his ten kids for and all of his everything he's worked for, he sits there and he still responds in a positive way to God Almighty by looking and saying, Woman, you want me to just... And we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about what is, what, where she's going and her attitude. But he responds with a phenomenal statement. Shall we not receive from the God who gives us good things some things that sometimes we consider evil or bad, hurtful, harmful? And he doesn't sin with his lips. Do you remember what Satan had said? Satan said, if you do this to him, he will curse you with his lips. That was the attack. And here it specifically says he doesn't sin with his lips. That Satan, for all of his attacks, he's wrong. God knew Job's quality. God knew Satan was guessing. Satan guessed wrong. Here he is, this man with integrity in the middle of hardships. You know, there's this true story that some of you remember that came out of the south. When all of a sudden they were invaded by the bull weevil that came up from Mexico into the region that cotton was king. And all of a sudden the cotton crops were being decimated by this bug. And remember your history how towns were ending up absolutely no income. Farmers were losing everything. Individuals who lived in those towns who sold them, you know, their, their uh, wagons or their bankers or whatever they did, their goods. Everybody was in this economic crisis. It was then that George Washington Carver, there who is leading and studying different, different farming techniques at the Tuskegee University, he suggested to some peoples that listened to him that they change their crops. They go to peanuts, they go to soybean, and I forget what the third one was. And several of them around Enterprise, Alabama, they responded listening to him. And they planted these new crops, and within just a short period of time, they recovered as an economy, and they became the center hub of providing some of those crops for all of America at that point. And it became a boon that all of a sudden these people were, were becoming wealthy once again and revived their economy. And what they thought was a disaster ended up being actually a blessing in disguise. They were doing so much better because they got out of the cotton industry. Some of the businessmen, within a few years later, they said, we need to erect a statue to that item that all of a sudden it redirected our thinking and it created for us an opportunity that, that we took and it became a blessing in disguise. So they built the statue to the bull weevil. You know, here's this monument that they, they understood that this thing actually was a blessing in disguise. Can I suggest to you that Job is raising a monument one that stands forever, but he didn't wait until the trial is over. He didn't wait until he sees how it ends up. In the middle of the trial, Job is lifting up his hands and saying, I'm giving glory to God. Commendable, outstanding, amazing. But in the midst of his comments, he introduces some very uncomfortable thoughts for us. Uncomfortable thoughts about God. 
and us. Things that we want to explain away at times, but we can't and we shouldn't. We need to just deal with what this text says. Deal with what God says to Satan. Take it for face value and get to know God a little bit better. You see, there are times when all of a sudden we don't want to talk about uncomfortable things. We wish they would go away. Um, when I got into uh, the house that we're living in, when they pulled the paneling and our remodeling of one area of the basement, when they pulled the paneling off the wall, there was this huge crack that went along the whole wall. My suggestion to take care of it is just put the panel back up. <laughs> the crack will go away. That, that's not the way you deal with it, right? That's not what you should do. It's an uncomfortable thing, and it's a chore, and it's going to be you know, more expense and difficulty to have to deal with that crack in the foundation. We men are really good at this. Where all of a sudden a rising health issue comes up. And it's uncomfortable to have to go to a doctor. It's uncomfortable to have to go through tests. So we in our manhood, it'll go away, we'll just pretend it's not there. It's uncomfortable, but it's foolish not to deal with. There's an area that a lot of people find extremely uncomfortable to deal with. Preparing a funeral. Preparing a will. There are some even here listening to this broadcast who you don't want to have the conversation with your spouse. You don't want to have the uncomfortable conversation with your kids about what happens if I die. By the way, the terms, the wording is wrong. It's not if I die. It's what? Yeah, and then we don't want to talk about it. We don't want to talk about it, and we leave the heartache to other people afterwards that have to kind of fend for themselves and try to figure out all the stuff. When if we would just say, here, it is a reality of life. It's uncomfortable, but let's talk about it, and let's handle it the right way. This text... The, the question of why suffering is uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable in this, the, what, how, what God says to Satan makes me uncomfortable. What Job says about God makes me uncomfortable. Because it's not the image that I want to, or the, the discussion I want to have about God. But it is biblical. And what we need to do is deal with some of these uncomfortable truths about God. So we get to know him better and we approach the Bible realistically. Number one uncomfortable truth. This is the easy one. But it's uncomfortable for some people. God is the source of all the blessings we ever had. God is the source of every blessing we'll ever have, have right now, or ever will have. He says that when Job says, shall we receive good at the hand of the Lord, not evil? His point is, everything that we possess... Satan has admitted, God, you have blessed him. It all came from your hand. If you take it away, he's going he's to reject you. That's not true. It didn't happen in Job's case. But in the spiritual realm, we have Satan, we have Job, both understanding that God is the source of all that Job physically possessed. That's true. You say, well, I don't find it uncomfortable. Some people do. Some people find it uncomfortable to have to admit that they aren't self-made. That you and I are totally dependent upon the Lord. For some, that's very uncomfortable. For some, that they have the idea that, that 
they have created. It's their skill set. It's what they have done. It belongs to them. There are some parents that it's uncomfortable if I say this comment. Your kids are not your kids. You have them on loan from God. Your job is actually God giving you the ability to work. Your degrees, your education. Yes, you studied. Yes, you did a great job. But if it wasn't for the Lord, you wouldn't have had the mental capabilities to even study. It's the Lord. It's the Lord who enables you to have the accomplishments. Some of you are graduating or have graduated with honors. Good. Congratulations. But the reality is it's God that enabled you to do those accomplishments. It's God that you need. You need the Lord because he's the one that enables you. He's the one that has given you the skill set. He's the one that has given you the possessions. It's the Lord. You and I are totally dependent upon him. We are not these independent, we're we're American thinking, but our independent, it's my rights and it's what I've accomplished. It's by the grace of God, you are what you are. It's the Lord. Uncomfortable thought, but a reality. It's the Lord. He is the source of all of our blessings. Uncomfortable thought? Give you another one. God, and I know some of you are going to squirm at this one, but this is true. God allows suffering to occur in this world. He does. We can't explain it away. We can't say, well, it's, it's all Satan. God doesn't say it's all Satan. Job it says, he says, shall we not receive good at the hand and not receive some of the hardships? The evil is not something morally bad. It's just something that we think is bad. The idea here is that God makes it clear. Satan, Satan, you did what you did because I allowed you. Look at the verse. I, I, I don't, I want to explain the verse away. I, I, I don't want it to be there. But this is what God says. God says in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, look at Job, consider him. He said, still he holds fast his integrity, although you moved who? You have to read it, folk. God says, you, Satan, moved. What's your Bible read? Me. Against him. To destroy him without purpose. God is acknowledging in this text that idea that he has allowed in this system the way things work, I have allowed suffering to occur. You and I don't like that. We say, well, if God were really you know, the way he should be, he would take away all suffering. If God operated that way, he wouldn't have let his son come into this world and suffer for you. We'd be damned forever. You have to think about how this bigger picture is in creation. Suffering was not a design by God from the very beginning. He didn't introduce it into the world. We know as well that with the introduction of sin by man, that there was a curse upon people and a curse upon creation. Thus there is hardship. Thus there is storms. Thus there are all those things that have come in. God has the ability. God has the power. God has a plan to end all of this. That will happen when God introduces and establishes his kingdom on earth. It's planned. 
He could do that whenever he wants to do that. But the reality is this. God has chosen not to do it as of yet. God says that when I do establish that kingdom, I will restore men and creation to the original form. That's a positive. We like that part. He also says this. When I do that, I'm going to end free choice. Because there will be no longer the opportunity for people to choose when God introduces this perfection forever. We also know that that will put an end, and we like this part, that will put an end to Satan's attacks. We know that it will be in the end that everybody will follow the Lord and Satan will no longer have the influence. We know that. And we like that part. But in between those two last two statements, three statements, the, the second from the last is the one we do, that, that we say, okay, there should always be free choice. There's not going to be always free choice. There is free choice right now, and God is allowing it. And he says that when I stop all this, the way it's operating, it'll put an end to the opportunity for people to get saved. I'll end it. I'll stop it. Because I'll stop and everything will just now be perfected and we're done with dealing with the individuals. So for right now, God is allowing the flow of history to continue, which in that flow of history, he is allowing free choice. With that free choice, he's allowing Satan to have some influence. With that, he is working at times, bringing in some suffering to help mature, modify, get people's attention. And he is working his plan towards his ultimate goal, that of stopping and ending all suffering. But it hasn't happened yet. And you and I might sit here this morning and say, why hasn't he? What if he had stopped that a hundred years ago? You wouldn't be alive. You wouldn't have an opportunity to live. What if he had stopped it ten years before you got saved? You would end up in hell. God is allowing this out of grace. He is allowing it because he is not willing that any should perish. We don't like some of the facets of it. We like the idea of patience. We like the idea of him saving people. But we get uncomfortable when we say, yeah, but there's suffering in there. Yeah, because God uses the suffering. We don't like the idea of Satan being involved in things. But God is using that. Using the opportunity to maneuver and to work and to persuade peoples to come to him. Some people don't. But God has chosen to do this. Whether you and I fully like the plan, He's God, we're not. Amen. So we take it a step further. We say that God allows suffering. I'll add the number three. Okay? God allows Satan to attack people. We know that. We see it in the text. We don't have to expand any further. We know that God has limited Satan. That Satan is given permission at times. I don't, I look and say, I wish he wasn't, but I'm not God. God has allowed Satan to attack Job. Not just once, twice. Really in a violent way. But I remind you, Satan was limited. And I remind you by this very fact that this is so important because when you and I are victims of demonic attacks... When you and I experience some of those difficulties, God has said this. God has said, there is no temptation taking you, but such as is common. You're not unique. I'm not unique. 
We're not the only one. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation make a way of escape. Satan may bring trials and troubles in your life, so you would curse God. Other people might stand next to you and say, curse God and die. There may be that affliction physically, financially. There may be the affliction with heartache and loss that that includes your employment or your health or something or another. But when that is allowed, and the instrument might be Satan, we know this, that behind it all, God knows you better than Satan does. God knows you so well that he will not allow you to be tempted above that you are able. So with every difficulty, you're getting a yes vote from God saying you can do this. You can handle it. God, in his, in his plan, does not allow you to suffer beyond your ability to remain faithful. We know another truth. We know a truth that says this then, bringing it to a little bit more together. That God is the ultimate authority. He's the ultimate. He's the one. Satan has to answer to him. It's God that, that has the ultimate. That he even says, you know, you couldn't do this. And I basically have given you permission hither and yon. We know that it's the Lord. You want to see sovereignty in this, past, this book? Go to chapter 37. Just one of the texts that show up in this book. Where Job is talking about, actually, it's, it's, um, it's discourse by one of the other men talking about God's greatness. That when we get there, we're going to see how it expands, how the Lord himself even adds to it. But it talks in chapter 37 about his greatness. How God directs it under the whole heaven. His lightning under the ends of the earth. Did you have any lightning going last night? Yes, no? Okay. Folk, here, uncomfortable truth. God is smarter and bigger and better than the weathermen. He knows the weather better than AccuWeather does. He's in charge of it. He says in verse 6, God, he says to the snow, be thou on the earth. Likewise to the small rain. Do any of you know what a small rain is anymore? Okay. <laughs> to the great rain of his strength. Go down to verse 10. By the breath of God, frost is given. The breath of the waters is straightened. Also by watering, he wearies the thick cloud. He scatters the bright cloud. As it is turned round about by his counsels, that they may do whatsoever he commands them upon the face of the world in the earth. He causes it to come, whether for correction or for his land or for mercy. God is the ultimate weather guy. He's, he's in charge. He's in control. He causes it to rain why are some areas of the country getting more rain than others? The Lord is ultimately in control of the system. We know that in the scriptures it says, I have withheld the rain from you, and there were yet three months to harvest. I caused it to rain upon one city and caused it not to rain upon another city. We know that scripture says, The Lord covers the heavens with clouds, who prepares the rain for the earth, who makes the grass to grow upon the mountains. We know the scripture says, He gives snow like wool, He casts forth ice like morsels, who can stand before His cold. We know that God's word says, He makes the sun to shine on the evil as well as the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. We know that the scriptures say, Surely as I have thought, it shall come to pass. As I have purposed, so shall it stand. I am the Lord, there is none other. I form the light. I create the darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. 
I am the Lord who does all these things. We understand where he says, he does whatsoever he pleases. This is scripture, folk. God is the ultimate one in charge. He will accomplish his purposes. Now here's the question. The question comes back to, when God is doing all this, okay, then why does he do what he does? Well, let me remind you, he understands and knows all that is happening. We understand as well that he is the okay guy. He is the yes man. He is ultimately the one that says it'll happen or it won't happen. Which leads me to another very, very important thought. You cannot, you cannot discuss the power of God, the authority of God, without putting this with it. God is good. God is good. He has all power. Do not assume, therefore, that this God who we say has all power, don't you question his integrity. He is good. Jesus Christ said in Mark chapter 10, he says, there is none good but God. Job recognizes this. He understands. He understands a really important thought that maybe some here need to grow up and get this handle. Good does not equal what makes us happy. Good does not equal what we want. Good does not equal what's easy and comfortable for us. Good does not say no suffering, no pain, then God is good. God is good if he meets me on my terms of serving me the way I want to be served. You're mistaken. God is sovereign, not you. And God is always good. So when he does his sovereign things, when he does his control, when he puts rain on one place and no rain on the other, he is not cruel, he is not vindictive, he is always good. He has plans that you and I may not understand. He has situations that we may not see the end of the situation. But God does good because this is where he's working. God, good from, our, from God's perspective is twofold. It enables us to be in and the best we can be in eternity. What I mean by that is this. God has your good at stake, always. He is working things in your life and in the lives of others. And sometimes there's suffering. Sometimes there's tragedy. Because sometimes that's the way to get people's attention. Sometimes people in this life do not think that there's suffering and they understand how mighty and majestic God is through some of the trials and troubles and they finally yield to him. He gives them a little bit of a foretaste of what it could be like if they rejected him. But in his goodness, his ultimate is he wants you to live with him for eternity. He does whatever he can to move, to work, so you choose. Without, without violating your choice, he allows you to choose to be saved or not to be saved. And so he's working. He's, he's operating in a way that he wants you to be in heaven. But not just to be in heaven, he wants you to be the best you can be when you're in heaven. He wants you to be conformed to the image of his Son. He wants you to be an individual so that when you get to heaven, you can hear what phrase? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. 
Now to get you to that point where you are dedicated, to get you to that point where you have finally gotten to where you are overcoming some of your impatience, some of your anger, some of your judgment of others, he might bring trials into your life. He might bring difficulties into your life. He might mold us with loneliness, with sadness. He might give us some difficulties so that we are totally relying upon him. We go through scriptures and we find how in the New Testament, Paul said, I was being lifted up with pride because of all the spiritual visions and dreams I was being given. And God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me humble, to keep me reliant. Can you imagine that happening to somebody? Can you imagine that there's a possibility in your life you might have come to a point where you were too filled with too much self-confidence, self-assurance that God had to humble you? He says, sometimes I have this thorn in my flesh so that God would be able to say, my grace is sufficient. It's not me. It's not my abilities. Could it ever happen that God might take away some of our physical healthiness so that we realize He is bigger and mightier than I am? That I can't do anything and everything? That I'm not invincible? We read in James where they, he writes in Scripture, he says, God brings trials into our life, sufferings into our lives, so that we would have more patience so that we would become more mature, more of what he wants. The reality is we learn patience through difficulty. We learn how to control the temper by getting in spots where we're challenged to control the temper. We're, we're going to learn how to stop whining and complaining by being put in situations where we whine and complain if otherwise. And God says, I'm going to keep you there. You've got to learn to stop. You, learn that, you need to learn that self-control. And if everything is glossy and glorious and always good and happy, I'm not going to be able to mature you in this area of self-control. So I'm going to give you in testing moments. I'm going to put you in trial sometimes. We have trials at times to bait so that we can minister to individuals. They come in our life so that we are able to better minister. There are some of you who have faced horrible situations, but it's opened up doors for you to minister to people that you never could before. So you can turn around one day and say, God can say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. We read in scriptures where God used trials and troubles. David admits, he said, before I was afflicted, I started going my own way. I was doing my own thing. But when I was afflicted, then I come back to the Lord. And God might have done that in your life. Or maybe that's what's happening now. That God is trying to bring you to a point where you are more reliant, more dedicated, more listening to Him. That all of a sudden you realize with the loss of possessions that they aren't everything. When all of a sudden you realize that the bank account, it is temporary because it's become temporary. It's gone. God says, I'm going to work. In situations where, like the man who was born blind... Why did God do that? The why is with him. I just know what he does. That he said that the suffering that was happening in that man's life where he was born blind was so that Jesus Christ was going to be magnified and glorified with what he could do with that man. 
Why is it that Lazarus died? Well, Jesus said to his disciples, I am glad for your sakes I wasn't there, so that you might believe. They were already born again. But that you might have a growing faith in me. In fact, at that tomb side, he prays and he says, Father, you always hear me. You always hear me now. Let those who are standing by understand how great you are. When Lazarus comes out, even though Mary and Martha went through days of grieving, they were sorrowing and it was painful. They even said, Lord, if you had been here, why weren't you here? But then at the end of it, many of those who saw believed. Does God allow suffering to get attention? Does God allow death at times so that it brings other people face to face with their own mortality so they get born again? That's what happened yesterday morning, 24 hours ago from here. Several people confronted in a funeral service responded to the gospel. Amen. Suffering happens. Okay? Suffering and difficulties in our sovereign God he is not uncaring. He is not one who is, who is insensitive. If you are going to say, well, if God is that powerful, why doesn't he work this way? You have a small frame view of God. You have to understand that our God who allows with patience suffering to continue is still a good God. He's a glorious God. There's a prophet that writes in Old where he talks about how he's weeping over Jerusalem. And he makes a statement that is very insightful for his understanding of God. When Jeremiah makes that statement that the Lord's mercies by them were not consumed, his compassions fail not, he is indicating that God, though he allows sufferings, he is not an insensitive God. He is not a cruel God. He is not a bully it doesn't mean he doesn't feel our pain and our discomfort. It doesn't mean that he is being hard or harsh towards us. He is doing what's best and he knows what's best. Okay. The Lord's working. The Lord moves. Let me see if I can picture it this way. A weak illustration, I understand. Your, your, your child is in need of a shot of an antibiotic, something. Your child sees that person coming close to them with a needle. Most of your children, mine were like this, when we walked into the doctor's office, they were already screaming because they knew what was coming. And if we were kind and loving parents, we would take them right back out to the car and let them have their own way. No. You mean some of you moms are cruel enough that you go all the way to that back room with that nurse or doctor and you let them shoot your kid? I shouldn't say it that way, should I? Give, give your kid a shot. Give your kid a shot. And you do it saying that you have done the right thing. You have done what's best for your child. I'm a good parent. I allowed my child to suffer. I allowed my child to cry. I'm doing a good job. In fact, if you didn't do it, you might end up in jail. 
true. Is God a lousy parent? That he would let us always be cooing and sucking on the pacifier without having going, going through some of the aches of growing up? Does he allow the needles of life to afflict us for our own good? And in fact, we're trying to dodge those needles. We do everything we can to get away from the difficulties. We want to get away from the trials when God says, but this is what's going to help you to grow. This is best for you. Uh-uh, uh-uh, it's best for him, but not for me. This is the God that we serve. The God who is able and willing to take the long look and do what's best for us for eternity. What a wonderful God we serve. That he isn't moved by our whining today. That he is looking for our best down through eternity. This God that we serve, he always does good. This God that we serve, come to this conclusion, always deserves our worship. Always. He always deserves our worship because it's not because he gives us stuff. He can take all the stuff away and he still deserves our worship. Yes? He deserves our worship not because of what he gives us but because of who he is. He deserves our worship because he's the one in charge. He's greater and bigger than us. He deserves our worship because he is always good. Everything he does is good. He deserves our worship because whatever he does, does in our life is for our good. He's good. I told you a couple weeks ago, walk away with the phrase, God sees all. I told you to walk away with the phrase last week. Bless God. No matter what happens, bless God. Can I give you a phrase this week to walk away with? To keep muddling through time after time? You are always good. You are always good. No matter what you do, you are always good. Did Job's wife struggle with that? Do I struggle with it? A whole lot more than she does. So I need to have a phrase in my mind that will help me to understand He's always good. That's why I picked a song this morning. Just right before the message and right at the end. Just to lock it in our minds. He's always good. He's always good. He is always good. No matter what he does, he is always good. Is it easy to say that? No. But is it what we need to change our thinking towards? Yes. You are always good. You are always good. You are always good.